Welcome to Psyched, a podcast about psychiatry that covers everything from the foundational to the cutting edge, from the popular to the weird. Thanks for tuning in. Through such a, a difficult experience just in what happened, but what are things that people did or didn't do um, that were helpful um, after uh, after the suicide? Um, how did people support you or fail to support you? And maybe more generally, um, how do people support or fail to support families uh, who've had someone die by suicide? Oh, that's a great question. I think it was hard because the first few days people ask you what they can do. And the first few days, really, you're just kind of in the closet, not recovering at all. And um, that was hard. And it was hard for me to feel like my children were getting less. And um, that was heartbreaking, like how some people supported it. And people who had lost someone, though, they were really good at following up and being thoughtful. I had a friend who would send me articles about grief. And she did that for several years after John's death, just like randomly um, saying, hey, I saw this and I was thinking of you. And that's something I always tell people is important to... um, schedule something further out like six months from then and say, think of what you would do right after someone dies. Maybe you would go to their house and help them. Maybe you would make them a meal. Don't do it the day after schedule it for a year later, schedule it for the next birthday of that person for any holiday is hard for people and purposely do something instead of asking what you can do because we're socialized to not accept help. And when you have grief, you don't always know what you want. It's too overwhelming. So the people that were the most supportive um, were the people who had been through some kind of death and understood the cyclical nature that some days will be hard and some days are easier and that it's harder You know, the second year when everyone has forgotten and you're still taking your kids to a grave or talking to your kids about their dad who's dead. Um, So just keep that in mind. I did have some friends who were really supportive and still understand that it's a permanent loss. It's not it's not always permanently devastating. You know, it's it's not always so immediate as when right when they die but they're still gone yeah so so that's what i tell people yeah and then you mentioned that you were surprised afterwards like some of the bad reactions or some of the lack of things that you maybe thought would be around or given to you that weren't um oh yeah well some of that is surprising like because with suicide prevention some people they'll reach out to you. Some people asked us for money to like donate to suicide prevention. And that was really overwhelming. And I 
if you if you look up things like a GoFundMe, like you actually raise, you know, they raise less or like a memorial for kids. Um, they'll do it a lot of times if someone dies of cancer, but not necessarily with a suicide death. So that stuff was hard. And then it's so strange, like talking about finances ever, you know, when you're like, oh, wow, that's interesting that my kids didn't have like a memorial fund. Um, but then like you survive. So what do you say? <laughs> it's like this horribly top tacky topic where you're like, oh, that's weird. And then people are asking you for money for like awareness and actually um, lost survivors of the number one um, funder of suicide prevention initiatives. So you're also, you know, a number one funder then for a topic that is really hitting you personally. And it kind of makes you, it's kind of off-putting, but it's also now I like want to help those things. <laughs> it's just like the people who are hurting you in some ways, like also some of those people um, were the most supportive. So I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, no, it, it does. And I think that I've heard um, mental illness described as the, the, the no potluck disease. Um, the no <laughs> I did, disease. We, did, we did not have funeral potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, you get cancer and you get, you get a casserole. Um, you know, you, you have a, you know, broken leg, you get a casserole, but like you get mental illness and you get no casserole. Yeah. You just can't post on Facebook guys. I just really could use a casserole today. Cause, uh, cause of my depression. <laughs> yeah. I am sad about something from five years ago still. Oopsies. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine, too, that, like, some people could say posting at all is sensationalizing a personal topic. Um, what would you say to somebody who would say that? Um, maybe it is. Um, it's also, maybe I should post something like, oh, and this is an inspirational story and now sell life coaching. Um <laughs> <laughs> if you think about it too because I thought about that we've started like MD suicide where people are sharing stories and I shared our story um, and talked to my friend who helped me create that website you know do we want to make sure we're protecting the stories of the children and part of me and I did talk to my kids and get you know their input on it um, but in the end I'm paying for my children and creating their world. And that's a choice everyone has to make for themselves. Like if they feel like they're sensationalizing it, then hopefully they're sensationalizing it and trying to help people at the same time. And if not, um, it's sad that we're so dingy with our attention and positive energy that we think someone asking for help or asking for attention is something negative. I also think in terms of sensationalized stories, it's interesting when like media wants more views, but they don't necessarily want to help. Like if someone wants to sell software, but they don't necessarily want to, they don't necessarily care about your story. When people are sharing their own story, 
you know that they have a personal interest. So take that for what it is. Um, like I do have a personal interest in this and it has impacted my life directly. And that also means I'm pro- you know, maybe it is just sensationalizing them. Um, right. and that's how it is. Some people, like you get to pick how you or something. Yeah. I mean, then people should maybe worry a little less about, about that and share their own story. And I don't think there's go. I don't think that hurts people as much as lying about something and carefully remaining silent. And some of the stories that people shared online that I read after John died made a huge difference for me. Um, so you have to find a balance. Like everyone has to find a balance and, you know, hopefully I have friends who will call me out if, if they feel like I'm getting too wrapped up in those things. And, and I do. And I also have to make that decision for myself. Is that bad? You're like, so people can say it's just for attention. I'm like, well, maybe it is <laughs> Maybe it's for attention. Like, you share your story to be able to share it and for people to know your story and to know you. And I think that's a very basic need with humanity to be known and for, to connect with people. And I think that when you have suicide death, that need for connection and to be known is not met. Hmm. Yeah, no, I I think you're absolutely right about the the need for connection and, um, in, Sort of a lot of the things you've you've talked about and and mentioned uh, today have been about uh, how sometimes community has come around and supported, but sometimes it hasn't. But um, but I, I guess how how has the how has this changed your the community that you had before, or put you into communities that you you hadn't been. Um, I think it's actually had a huge impact on my community. Um, I've been able to meet some people who are really supportive and suicide prevention, amazing people. And some of the friends that I'd had for a long time had a harder time dealing with the death. And they didn't have that same connection. And that's really hard to see how it will change your support group. But it's also, you know, it's good and bad, but I feel like I've been able to connect with people who really care too about burnout and about improving a system and care about doing that work um, and want to do stuff together. So that's been amazing. And I know you're really interested in digital solutions to things. What do you think is different about that? And what do you think makes that a kind of untapped resource for this community? Oh, I think digital solutions are interesting just because we have lower barriers. If you think about it, the things that you'll say to someone on their Facebook posts, you might not say to them online or the things that you'll 
text people, you wouldn't always say that to their face. Um, so there's a place to be more honest, but also if you feel like you have these questions about, um, depression or about suicide and you don't know who to talk to them about, um, then digital tools can offer you that community support that might not be available somewhere else. And I think one of the other important things to remember for me is how quickly some social media tools or those things can connect you. Um, because if you have a question about something, you can find answers a lot quicker. So I think it's a great opportunity. Like we, we set up like a, a virtual support group, which you could, it's, it's better with your time, but it's also helps people in terms of being that barrier to entry being lower. Um, I do think in-person connection is the best, but um, there are people who would never have those connections because they don't have time or they, they have, um, you know, they have some other barrier that would keep them from, from being involved. And I think it's important to digital tools can enable them to be involved when they might not otherwise get any help. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a fascinating new dimension. I know that uh, a lot of the talk has been around um, how, you know, the, the, there's some, at least in our field, um, magic in the room if you're physically face-to-face present. And some people say that even if there's a video camera present for training purposes, that, 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 that takes away the magic. And certainly being in a different room when you're doing teletherapy, that completely ruins things. Um, but your experience with uh, the, the online support group um, has, been, has been that there, there is maybe not as good as face-to-face, but there is still something... Right. Yeah. It might not be as good face to face, but some people don't want to be face to face because they don't, they aren't really ready for that level of direct, um, directly combating their problem. Like maybe they're not ready for that. So. Yeah. And, and from your perspective, I know that maybe your support groups aren't run by psychiatrists, right? So what do you think the role of psychiatry is in all of this? Um, I think they can help. Oh my God. Um, I think they, no, we work with a licensed clinical social worker currently and psychiatrists, you know, we're always looking for people to get involved. I think psychiatrists should be more involved and I think they should be overseeing most of the clinical development. And we worked with a psychiatrist to develop some of it. Um, and obviously they have expertise in identifying, um, you know, medications or identifying things that other people might miss. And I would need to talk to more psychiatrists about how they should improve it. Because I have worked with some about improving the measurement tools and improving the design and making sure the tools are efficient, but not as much about how to um, really work together. Mm. Well, um, we we really appreciate your coming on to talk with us. Um, and 
just wanted to give you uh, one last uh, opportunity to, is there anything that you would say to a young, uh, a young doctor or young trainee um, who's, who's just getting started? Uh, any advice you'd have? I think my advice to them is to keep an open mind and to actively seek out the best workplace solutions that they can. And if they find themselves getting hopeless, to be brutally honest more than, more than they um, would normally be. And think of that. And I also think new physicians are less tolerant of some of the things that are creating these horrible environments. And they are great activists for improving the mental health and improving the workforce for all physicians. Yeah. If there's one thing that you would say, like what psychiatry gets wrong, what would you say that is? Um, I think psychiatry also takes itself too seriously. Totally. Uh, <laughs> they take itself very seriously and they're, they're already a group where they've been fighting for, um, validation and, you know, if you can't diagnose many of your classmates with some form of crazy, then I don't know if you really went to school. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But I would tell them to be more vocal about how psychiatry interacts with burnout and how be more critical of other other specialties and be really self-aware of their own limitations. Is that bad to tell them to be more critical? I probably shouldn't do that. Um, <laughs> I don't think so. What's your favorite book? This is a random question. My favorite book? Well, I really like Tad Williams. He's a fantasy writer. Nice. <laughs> uh, and uh, your uh, another rapid fire question. You're uh, somebody who you admire, a hero of yours, either from fiction or real life. Oh, that's a great question. I have a lot of people that I really admire. Um. Hmm. One of the people in suicide activism that I really like, her name's Desiree Stage, and she shares stories of attempt survivors lived through this, and she was super supportive. Um, so she's someone that I really respect in the space as someone who cares about individuals. And um, that's one person I really admire. And. <laughs> Our last question uh, for the interview. Um, what is the largest quilt you've ever made? <laughs> largest quilt? You know, it's interesting. When we lived um, outside of Philadelphia, we made about 2,000 quilts for, um, for like underserved people. And um, the largest quilt I've ever made is just a little bit bigger than a king size quilt I made for myself. So. Normally, a I, lot. that's a lot of quilts. I was not expecting. Oh, we made a bunch. It wasn't just me, but yes. it was it was a really cool thing to be involved in. Well, totally excellent. Uh, well, Janae, we really appreciate your time, and uh, thank you for joining us on Psyched. Thank you. Thank you.